So we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, I'm going to read the end of the story. It's like one of those movies where you see the whole thing at the very end. And then it kind of starts back and brings you up to that point. To like, how in the world did we get here? That's what we're about to do. So if you have a Bible, open up with me, as I said, to 1 Kings 18. Uh, First Kings 8, chapter 18, we're going to start at verse 41, 41. So let's stand and uh, we're going to read 41 through 46 together. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. So starting at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the house, I'm sorry, to the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to a servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And on the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand uh, is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stops you. And in a little while... The heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode uh, and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've been so kind to give us your word. We pray this morning for a special measure of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would give us insight to see and understand the text. But as we do that, Lord, and we want to apply it directly to our lives, more so that we'll also see and understand um, the good news of Jesus, that we'll see Jesus in 1 Kings 18, and we'll understand the the glory of Christ more, and that it uh, it would change our hearts to want to live for you more. Um, Forgive us for the times where we don't, And I pray that you would soften our hearts to want to live for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I grew up in a church. uh, And as I grew up in a church, nothing was really concretely taught in the church except for one thing. How to become a Christian. (laughs) So it was a typical kind of Baptist church. uh, Confess your sin. Believe in Jesus. Become a Christian. Admit, believe, confess, ABC. And then after that. Like there wasn't a whole lot of more to it than after that um, beyond beyond of who God is. What are some things that you should know about God? Um, how should you live in light of these glorious truths about God? And it wasn't really until college until after I had transferred, I went to uh, USC and then transferred to Charleston Southern and was started majoring in Christian studies. And while I was at Christ, there majoring in Christian studies, I began to understand um, surrounded by, by people who really wanted to know God and then just doing a lot of reading, etc. It wasn't then until I really began to an- understand who God was and what it meant to be a Christian in light of who he was and what it re- meant for me and required of me as a Christian uh, to live in light of. What did, it, what did it require that I needed to do and what did it require that I need to live differently? It wasn't until uh, later on in life that that was something that was really taught to me. But um, the good news for us is this, isn't a lo- this doesn't have to be a really long process that we have to go through to really uh, not just be saved and then kind of not grow but really know who God is. It have to be something long and drawn out like it did it was for me because we have the Bible and namely even today we have first Kings 18. First Kings 18 is going to actually tell us um, the, 
the big kind of point of 1 Kings 18, the, the big overarching umbrella of, of 1 Kings 18 is answering this question, who's the real God? Who is it? Is it Yahweh or Baal? And as it answers this big question of who is the real God, obviously it's Yahweh, then it's going to tell us um, then what does that mean? What does that require? What does that what does it entail then as a follower of God, as a follower of, of Yahweh? What are some things that I'm supposed to be doing in my life? What, what does it mean? And all that's going to, uh, there's, we could go all over the Bible and find a lot more. But we're going to, we are going to see those things here in the text today. So starting in 1 Kings chapter 18, we've, we've uh, already, as I said, read 41 through 46 where we see the end. Um, and the end is really the, uh, the kind of the end point of what's happened before. So if you remember in chapter 17, verse 1, uh, we, had, we had just finished the big long list of all the terrible kings in, in chapters 14 through 16. And then when we got to 16, the last king we see is Ahab. And Ahab, it tells us in 1630 that he was worse than all the kings before him. He was just awful. And then it tells us in 33, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings were before him because he had set up the Baals and the Asheroth and he had set up all these idolatrous things. And then when we get to 17.1, you have Elijah just out of nowhere come to Ahab, the worst king ever, and tell him, hey, guess what? Uh, you worship Baal and you think Baal's the one that provides rain. God's the one, Yahweh's the one that provides rain, not him. And so in 17.1, Ahab walks right up to, I'm sorry, Elijah walks right up to Ahab and says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years. We know that's about three, except by my word. So he declares this thing to Ahab. And he gets out of there and he's gone and he hides for three years. And there's this massive famine, massive drought all throughout going. Um, and so they're, they're, want, they're wanting for rain to come back. And Elijah goes and hides and birds feed him. And then he goes and hides with a widow. And God's really good at keeping Elijah hid. Well, we just saw kind of the end, the overarc of that three years when we read in 41 through 46 of the chapter we're in today, chapter 18, rain's coming. So it's been three years now and God's bringing the rain. So we're going to see, well, what was it that, what were the circumstances that brought it about? How do we know in chapter 18 that God, Yahweh's really God? And what does it mean now in chapter 18 for us in light of that? What does it mean that we're supposed to do? How, how are we supposed to live? So <clears throat> if we remember... As I just said, Elijah came to Ahab and said, there's not going to be any rain and I'm going to leave and I'm going to get out of here. So Elijah, the prophet goes and he hides, but, uh, there are, there, there are numerous prophets, but we're going to see one here that actually stays. There's a guy named Obadiah who stays in the kingdom. He doesn't get to go and hide. He's, he's a prophet just like, um, Elijah, but he's different. So let's start at chapter 18, verse one, and we're going to see, um, how the story unfolds. 18.1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to, to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So this is, this is the most important, one of the most important sentences in, chap, in the chapter. Everything that unfolds after that is bringing about this promise that God made in 18.1. God says it's finally going to rain and now we're going to watch how all of it unfolds until we've already seen 41 through 46 where it finally does. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. He's going to go to, to Ahab. And we see the famine was severe there in, in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Uh, this guy, Obadiah, helped Ahab kind of overlook his household and make things were, make sure things were uh, in order. And you can see this little parenthetical now. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So you can just, you can, 
you can feel this for Obadiah, right? Obadiah, a follower of God, actually has to work in the household of Ahab, a terrible person to work for. But nevertheless, he has to stay there. This is his job. He's going to be there under this terrible king, uh, Ahab, and, and work for him. So you've got, oh, just, we're wanting to juxtapose now Obadiah who has to stay and work for this person. We've got Elijah who gets to hide and not have to do that. We're going to see those two people in just a second. So keep going. He, he feared the Lord greatly. And then he also did this. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave and then would feed them and, and fed them with bread and with water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of the water into all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So it's kind of interesting. You have King Ahab wanting to save mules and horses. And you've got Obadiah literally saving the prophets of God, the people of God, hiding it from Ahab's wife, Jezebel. Um, And so it's just an interesting kind of juxtaposition between the two of them. And then after that, since there's a famine, there's hardly any water, there's hardly any grass. And Ahab's like, hey, so Obadiah, um, we're going to go look. I'm going to go this direction and see if I can find anything. You're going to go this direction and see if you can find anything. And they, they split up. Now, what we're going to see is the way that Obadiah goes, he's going to run into Elijah. That's not happenstance. That's not just, wow, what luck it is. Um, God and his sovereignty knows which way they're going to go, directs their hearts to which way to go, so that when Obadiah goes, he's going to run into Elijah. So here we go, starting in verse 6. So they divided the land between them the past, and Ahab went one direction by himself. Obadiah went to another direction by himself. There we go. Ahab and Obadiah looking for, looking for grass, for, for animals. Um, but what we know so far about Obadiah is that he's a really good guy. Uh, and he's such a good guy that he's literally hiding prophets away from Jezebel so that she won't kill him because that was, that's, that's her deal. That's what she loves. Um, so... If you keep going, it says this in verse seven. Now, as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And so they run into each other, Ahab somewhere else. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? It had been three years. And so perhaps he had changed a little bit. And he answered him, it is I. Go tell your Lord, that's lowercase. That means go tell Ahab. Behold, Elijah is here. Remember, Elijah means... um, Hold on, I wrote it down. I forgot exactly. The, 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 my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. Behold, my God is Yahweh is here. So you can just imagine where he's going in there and he's going to say, Ahab, guess what? Elijah, my God is Yahweh is here. No, he already knows Elijah. He can't stand Elijah. He's been looking for Elijah for three years. He's pretty mad at Elijah. And he's telling him, I want you to go right up to Ahab and say, my God is Yahweh. Elijah is here. And so you can just picture, he's like, well, bring him to me. That's what Ahab would say. Uh, But I want you to go tell him, behold, Elijah is here. Now, I want to stop here for a second. And since the overarching point of this whole chapter is, um, we're discovering who the real God is, namely it's it's Yahweh. And what does he require of his servants? We have two servants of God put together for us to examine. Now, no doubt you can make a continuum of Lots of different kind of talents and giftings in between these two. But we have Elijah and we have Obadiah. And there's some things that are said about him. Elijah, we already know from chapter 17, 
Elijah's a stud. Like he's an amazing guy and he has a different calling than Obadiah. He, he goes and he d- directly calls out Ahab for being an idolater. And then he runs out, birds feed him, uh, the widow feeds him. He raises the widow's son back to life and that's his calling and that's his life. And that's the way he's going to live as a prophet of God. And he's even going to, as we're going to see in chapter 18, be used mightily. And you also have Obadiah who, who it says he feared the Lord. He very quietly hides the prophets of God so Jezebel can't keep them, uh, can't kill them. And we have these kind of two people being used by God in very different ways. And so what does the real God require? First, you can see he requires. And by the way, all these are going to be what does the real God require dot 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 rest of the sentence. And the number two will be the rest of the sentence and there'll be five of them. So um, the, the first thing that we see is multifaceted faithful service to offer to the real God. And what I mean is by putting these two guys together and you could put a whole host of other people with other giftings. But what we see is they live very different lives. Elijah's faithful calling is to go is proclaim something, go and hide and be fed by ravens, be fed by the widow to raise her to, to life, to come back to Mount Carmel, to have the showdown at Mount Carmel, kind of a big public enterprise kind of thing. But that's not Obadiah. Obadiah is calling and he lives in it and he's faithful and he's fearing the Lord greatly by behind the scenes, hiding prophets, hide them in caves and fifties, bringing food behind uh, the king and queen's back and literally having to live in the household and have an evil boss and try to walk the line of how do I fear and love Yahweh and serve this King Ahab who hates God? How do I, how do I walk this line? It's a very different lifestyle than what Elijah has. But the point is, is that they both are living these two different faithful lives to God. And so what does God require? It requires for you and me, whatever calling we have and whatever giftings that we have to walk faithfully in that. Some of us can be on the Elijah side of He's on the side, on the Elijah side of the continuum. Some of us can be on the Obadiah and anywhere in between. But it doesn't mean that you have to be Obadiah or you have to be Elijah if you're not. You be who you are. Um, use your gifting and calling. Some of you will be more public. Some of you won't. Um, some of you will be more behind the scenes like Obadiah. But it doesn't matter. That's not, that's not the, uh, the big deal. The big deal is that whatever God's calling you to do with your giftings, that you be faithful. That you be faithful to it. Uh, you know what it is, and the Lord wants you to be faithful to it. So here we're going to see um, Elijah meets up with Obadiah on the road, and he says, uh, Obadiah, I want you to go to Ahab, and I want you to tell him, behold, Elijah is here. Now, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal because Ahab has been looking for him for a long time. And so that makes Obadiah pretty scared. He's like, okay, let's say I go do that. And then all of a sudden you're gone. Like you don't show he's going to kill me. And it's not, it's not a bad thing for Obadiah to want to stay alive. It's, it's, I would say it's actually a good thing for Obadiah to want to live. Uh, And so you can see it. He's going to be rather redundant and repeat himself, but he's going to start in verse nine. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant to the hand of Ahab to kill me? He's like, okay. So one thing I know about you is this, uh, one, you're really good at hiding Elijah. (laughs) You've been hiding for three years. God's pretty good at keeping you hid. And so I also know that Ahab's been looking for you everywhere. So if I go and say, Elijah's here and you don't, you aren't there, I'm dead. And you know, I don't, I don't really want to die. So why is it that you hate me so much (laughs) to do this? And as the Lord lives, there's no nation. I'm in verse 10. There's no nation, no kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. 
He's literally been looking everywhere for you. God's really good at hiding him because he, he's, he's been looking everywhere and hasn't found him. And they would say, he's not here. And he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. And now you say, um, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you because it's obviously God who hides you. He's going to just take you away where I don't know. And so when I come back and I tell Ahab, he can't find you. He's going to kill me. And although I, your servant, have feared the Lord with my youth, hasn't been told to you that I that I've been um, hiding the prophets of God. Jezebel's tried to kill prophets. I've been hidden, hiding the hundreds of men, the Lord's. From, in caves and fed them bread and water. And now you say, go tell the Lord. See, he, he's carrying on pretty, pretty extensively. Behold, Elijah is here. He's going to kill me. And Elijah said this. So Elijah stops him and he's like, hey, listen, calm down. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will show myself to him today. I'm going to show up to the meeting. He's not going to kill you. I'm going to show up. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab to tell him. And Ahab's like, yes, I want to see him. And so they come out. So we're going to go to the meeting in just a second. But um, as I said, Obadiah is aware of two things. Ahab's been looking for Elijah everywhere and can't find him. And God's been hiding Elijah and God's really good at hiding him. And so if God wants to hide him again, as soon as he delivers that message, um, Ahab won't be able to find him. And then Ahab will want to kill Obadiah. And he's like, just make sure you show up to the meeting. I'm going to show up to the meeting. So despite Obadiah's initial skepticism of the plan, wondering if he's going to make the announcement because it would mean death. Elijah assures him, I'm going to make the meeting. You, you won't die. And so he goes and tells him. So let's look at these two one more time. And I want to quote uh, one commentator because he, he brings out something about the, the two types of faithful service to God. <coughs> With these two men, they're very, very different, but they still have amazing faithful service to God. And for us, it should help us realize that what God requires of us, this real God, is he requires of us also Faithful service. This is what he says. We can draw this legitimate application. He says, Obadiah is very different from Elijah. Right now, you should, you're probably already kind of identifying with one or the other. He says this, Elijah's ministry is more public and confrontational. Obadiah is quiet behind the scenes. Yet both of them are faithful in the spheres that God places them. The Bible never tells us um, that what kind of servant we're supposed to be, except that we are a faithful servant. It never, ever demands you, demands that you have to be an Elijah clone. Some of you, um, some of us are not called necessarily to great works, but all of us are called to good works. Not all of us are going to be called to a flamboyant ministry, but all of us are called to faithful ministry. Not all of us are going to be necessarily dashing, but all of us are called to be devoted. Elijah and Obadiah, two faithful and different servants, for sure. Um, but their service is diverse and they're faithful. And so this is what we're called to be. Whatever you are and whoever you are, if you're both of those, one of those two or anywhere in the continuum, God wants you, since he is the real God, to be faithful to what he's called you to. So if we're going to um, drop it down into a real helpful text to, to apply it. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we're all part of a body. That all of us are part of the body of this church. And so every single one of us have been given giftings of being a part of this body. He's uniquely put this body together with its giftings. Meaning, God wants you to take your giftings, whatever they are, and faithfully use them in the life of the church. Your giftings, which all of you have, your spiritual gifts, have been given you primarily for the sake of the body. Of course, 
You're a secondary beneficiary and you will grow in your sanctification because of it. Whatever the gift is. But primarily, your gift has been given to you for the equipping of the church body. Not you, but everybody else in this church. Which means we all must be faithful to the call that God has given to us. We all must be faithful to the gifting that he's given to you. Here at our church, we are multifaceted in our gifting for sure. But it means absolutely that it involves you. You should be here every single um, Sunday using your giftings, whether it be in all the different places you can, you can serve and then attending the service the other time. You should be at community group every single week um, being a part of that group, using your giftings to help and equip and encourage um, the other people. I, I've said this story before, but there's this guy named Jeff Doyle when I was in seminary. I was there for three years at seminary. And in the middle year that I was there, in the spring, seminary had uh, intramural basketball. And, you know, I had to play and I had to relive the glory days. There were glory days, so I had to relive the glory days. Anyway, my point is the glory day, uh, the, the intramural basketball fell on community group. And there was a span of like eight weeks or so that I missed community group in a row. My wife would go and I would go play basketball. And Jeff Doyle comes to me and confronts me right in the face. And he's like, listen, um, and what he said to me is exactly what you need to hear and what I need to hear. Um, he said, when you're not at community group, other people are missing out on the word that God wants to speak through you to encourage other people to grow in their faith. And that, my thought is, it's a bunch of seminarians. They don't need me. Anybody else can do that. He's like, oh yeah, but they're not you. God has uniquely gifted you also, just like everybody else, that when everybody's there, everybody mutually grows. And so the same thing's true for you. God wants you every week to be in church and to be in community group because he has orchestrated it so that when you're there, the words you say, the encouragement you give, the presence of you being there is intentional because it is going to be, God's going to use you to bless other people and grow them up. And that won't happen if you're not there. It won't happen. It's absolutely imperative that you're there. So the first thing that God requires is faithful service. He wants us to be faithful, which is why, and I hadn't done it in a while, that I give the four E's. Whenever we come to church, we should be eager, expectant, early, and every Sunday. Like, we should have these things going on. We can't wait to be here. We're really expecting God going to do something. We actually get here early and every Sunday. We get here every single Sunday so that we can um, be used by God. All right, that's the first thing. Now we go to verse 17, and we finally have the meeting. Remember, in uh, the previous chapter, 16.1, Ahab is in his king kingdom, and, and uh, Elijah walks right up, and he's like, three years because of your idolatry, and Baal's not real, and the whole thing's going to, because of you, there won't be any rain. And then he gets out of there, right? And so Ahab remembers this, this confrontation of Elijah, this bold Elijah proclaiming in his face. And he's been looking for him everywhere, and he's ready to have the meeting. And he wants to talk to him. He's like, oh, yeah, I remember our last meeting, and I can't wait to have the next one because I've got some things to say to you. And so this is Ahab, the, the wretched, terrible king that he needs to say to Elijah. And in verse 17 and through 19, we actually see the conversation. This is great. Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? So we can already see blame shifting immediately, right? And he answered, this is Elijah's answer. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have, 
and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The second thing that God requires, number two, you can go ahead and put it up, is unparalleled boldness to proclaim the real God. Or you could even say the truth of the real God. This is unbelievable boldness to stand there in front of this powerful king who's just terrible and tell him. Exhibit A of the unparalleled boldness. He says, I'm not the troubler. You are. And your dad. Like it gets personal, right? Takes it back up a generation. Your dad too. Because you don't follow God's commandments. I'm not the troubler. You are. Note Ahab. Ahab is so blind to his own sin. He immediately blames Elijah. It's not me. It's you. Now, obviously, we know that's not the truth. um, That it is Ahab. But Ahab is so blind to his own sin. Instead of repenting here, he blames Elijah. And we should not be like this, like Ahab. Don't be blind to your sin. Repent immediately. Uh, people are in your life. God puts people in your life. Sometimes it's your spouse. Sometimes it's your roommate. The people that are closest to you, people that know you the best are generally the people that God uses the most to point out your sin. Generally. Uh, it's not because that they are really mad at you because they're around you the most. It's because they're around you the most. They see it. And that's the grace and a gift of God that they're around you, that they're there to point those things out. And when they do, don't say, oh yeah, well, how about this? Instead, don't be like Ahab. Instead say, you're right. You're right. This is true of me. And then repent immediately. So that's exhibit A. He calls him out. I'm not the troubler. You're the troubler and your dad. Exhibit B is in verse 19 of his boldness. He looks at him and he says, Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So exhibit B of his boldness is get all Israel, get all the Baal followers, get all the Asherah followers and meet me at Mount Carmel for the showdown. I'm going to show you. I mean, this is unbelievable boldness and the power of God to show up. Right. And so we see this awesome boldness. And he's, by the way, he says, meet me at Mount Carmel. This is basically saying, I'm going to show you what's up at a road game. So I'm coming to your turf. I'm wearing the white Jersey. I'm going to be the visitor. I'm coming to your hometown. I'm coming to your ballpark and I'm going to destroy you on your turf. And what this does, obviously, uh, for Elijah to do this, when Yahweh is going to you know, the visiting team's uh, stadium is it's going to eliminate all doubt because if it was a home game and Yahweh wins, he was at home. But when he goes into the, on the road to the visiting stadium and destroys Baal, there's no doubt that Yahweh's God now. And so he, this is boldness also of Elijah to say, I'm coming to your place. Um, which means unparalleled boldness should be the thing that one of the things that that kind of marks us. And this is what I mean, okay? This is what I mean. Um, No one should be more bold to speak the truth about God and what his word says than Christians. No one should be more bold because we actually have the truth and God on our side. Now, when I say bold, don't hear, you know, be a jerk. Don't hear that. Don't, Don't hear that. We still have to be winsome and loving and caring. We're not going to be rude, but we absolutely can be bold. Why, why would we not? We have the truth, not a truth, the truth. Everything else is false besides the Bible. 
right? We have the truth and the only God. So we should have unbelievable boldness. Which brings us to uh, whenever they get to the, to the mountain. So he says, get all your people. And I want you to just note, right? He says, um, he says to Ahab, bring Israel with you. This, these are the people of God. These are the people that uh, Elijah wants to win over. And then also bring the Baal prophets and the Asherah prophets. Not so much about concerned about winning them over. But he wants all Israel there to be at the showdown so that Israel will see, is Baal God or is Yahweh God? And hopefully his goal is that they'll repent. Like they would, they would turn their backs on their idols and return to Yahweh. That's what he wants. And so we, in verse 20, we finally get there on the mountain and everybody's there. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered all the prophets together. And they all went to Mount Carmel. The, the stadium's filled. It's uh, Baal Stadium. Um, it's not, but you know what I mean? So they're there, right? And Elijah came near to all the people and just right out the gate, looks at all of Israel, looks past the Baal prophets, looks past the Asherah prophets, looks at the people that he's concerned about the most, looks at the people of God and looks at them and says, this is awesome. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He wants them to make a decision. He has an uncompromising decisiveness where I'm going to follow Yahweh and Yahweh only. I'm not going to limp between being the people of God of Israel and saying that I really believe in God, but also following Baal, kind of, kind of striding the middle of the road or the middle of this fence. Instead, I have uncompromising decisiveness that I am going to follow Yahweh. And he looks at them and says, which one are you going to do? Make a decision. Make a decision. Which brings us to the third thing. What does a real God require? He requires uncompromising decisiveness to follow the real God. He does not want us to straddle the fence. He does not want us to go between God following Jesus and also following idols. So he looked right at him and he says, come out of this idolatry. Come out of it. Stop limping between two opinions. Now, let's stop and ask this question. So if Elijah's looking at the people of God and telling them, come out of it, what was it that was keeping them there? Why would they cling to this idol of Baal so tightly? What is it that he's calling them out of? What is it about Baal that seems to be so great? Because for us, we're like, Baal, he's, never, he's nothing. Like, who cares? Why would they not just follow Yahweh? It's so, so obvious on its face. Well, we didn't live 3,000 years ago. So let's, um, let me tell you four things about Baal that made it easy for the people of God at this time to follow Baal instead of Yahweh. One, it was the God that the king and his wife followed. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel followed Baal. And so it's significantly easier to be a Baal follower in this time, right? These are theocracies. And so if we follow what the king follows... Life is easier for us. We get to breathe and eat and not die. And that sounds good. Um, and it's just safer. Like, <coughs> let's follow the safe way. Number two, Baal wasn't just a brand new thing that, that Jezebel had ushered in. 
Um, people of God have been following this idolatry for a while. So some couple hundred years ago, it had snuck its way in and it had become part of the, the culture of Israel. So after a couple hundred years, here we are. And now it's kind of part of who they are. And so for them, not only was it safe and easy because the king and its in the queen follow, but also now it had a little bit of tradition to it. The people of God are like, well, maybe we are as Israel Baal worshippers. That's why we cling. That's who we are. That's our. That's our kind of our historical couple hundred years culture. And they started believing that that's who they were. Three. Also following a Baal, seemingly not really, but seemingly to them, met their met their felt needs. As we've already said, uh, Canaanite mythology believed that Baal was the was the god of two things. Right. One, he was the god of rain, which is why God said no more rain. Because I'm going to show you that Yahweh's God. But they, it met their felt needs to think, well, if Baal really brings rain, then we have food and we get to live. So, gosh, yeah, he meets my felt needs by bringing me rain so I can eat. But the second felt need, they believe that Baal was also the God of fertility, which means, hey, we get to have a family because of Baal. And so my felt needs are met, are met by following Baal. I, it's safe. There's tradition. And it meets my felt needs. Of fertility and rain. Lastly, fourth, and this is the more debaucherous end of Baal worship, um, rampant sexual sin was permitted. If your spouse wasn't attractive to you anymore, uh, you didn't like what was going on, no big deal to be a Baal worshiper just to go up to the Baal temple and hook up with one of the prostitutes. It's just fine in Baal worship. You can do whatever you want. And so uh, it, uh, for the debaucherous, was a reason to like, oh, that's great. I just get to be as sinful as I want. No repercussions, no, no guilt. Oh, that seems great. So it's safe. There's a little bit of tradition. It meets my felt needs by bringing rain and fertility. And if I just want to be rampantly sexually sinful, then it's actually it's permitted. It's encouraged. Just go down to the Baal temple and hook up with a prostitute. So what is he calling them out of? He's calling them out of a lot of things that were keeping them in there. And now we can see how Baal who's not real, was offering the kind of same false promises and same false comforts that idols offer today. So when we call people out of idolatry, the same kind of things are keeping them in. It's safe to just do this. It's easier just to follow this sinful pattern rather than follow God. I've been doing it a while. It's part of my culture. It's who I am. It meets my felt needs. And if I could really want to, I can just be debaucherous and it's okay. And so, um, we can understand a little bit more now why it was so hard for them to uh, walk away from Baal because in our idolatrous, in our idolatrous hearts, the same things can be true. And he looks at him, he says, come out of that. Come out of it now. How long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? Because God will not have it anymore. One commentator, one commentator writes it this way. God will keep um, pouring over into your life, claiming parts of your life, invading parts of your life, refusing to allow you to put God into his own little religious box. We may prefer a tiny lowercase g God that we've domesticated. We can show him to his, the little deity to his little litter box and keep him in his place. But that's not the real God. And you hear the real God in 1 Kings eighteen twenty one. And if you transpose that text into the New Testament theology, you realize that God does not permit nonsense like having Jesus as Savior, but not just but not also having Jesus as your Lord. Jesus doesn't give you that option. And so 
The same thing that he's telling to the people, how long will you go limping between these two different opinions? He's telling to us, renounce the idolatry in your life. Sin is offering you false comforts and false promises, safety and meeting your felt needs and even getting to be debaucherous. And he's saying, be decisive, people of God, and walk away from it. Have an uncompromising decisiveness to no longer follow idols, but now follow God and God only. This is what it means to follow the real God. So for us, when you have, and Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. It's literally, as soon as an idol is made, we kill it, it just makes another one. Over and over, it's just a factory. And he's telling us to kill these idols in our life continually and uncompromisingly decide, I'm only going to follow God. I'm not going to keep my hand and my toes dipped in the side of the pool of idolatry anymore. That's what Elijah calls them out of. And that's what God is calling us out of. Now we get to see kind of the whole interaction here. Um, and as this, this story unfolds on the mount uh, in Mount Carmel, the big picture thing that we're going to see is that Yahweh is God. Baal is not just not a God. He's nothing. He doesn't even exist. He's a non-entity. He's a zero. And so the fourth thing that we're going to see, you can go ahead and put it up. What does the real God require? The absolute awareness for us to seek to know the real God. Now, I don't say know the real God because that's impossible. The finite cannot fully know the infinite. It's impossible. But what we can resolve is to seek to know continually God. And so we need to be aware. There's this God. There's infinite things that we can know about him. New mercies every day. Um, unfound riches at his feet to come understand and know that we need to seek to know him every day. Meaning this, meaning this. So um, you've had likely some of these times in your life where God has been so gracious to you to have you uh, really uh, come face to face with who he is. It could be just in your morning devotion as you read the Bible. It could be at a, at a church service one day. It could be at a conference or over a cup of coffee as someone, as you're looking at the text, or you're just telling somebody the gospel. There's been times in your life where there's been, it's been, it's been more acute to your senses, like, holy moly. You might not say holy moly. Wow. Whatever you say in your exclamation, God is huge. This is unbelievable. Like there's been these times in your life where you've been just acutely aware of the magnificence and the grandeur and the glory of God. It happens to us all who are believers at some point. And what God's wanting us as people who follow him to have this absolute awareness of when that happens that we're supposed to say, I need to know him more right now. I need to know as much as I can. We don't say, Oh, wow. Look at this amazingly, extravagantly vast, huge God. Wow. I could use a latte. You know, like we we can't be ho-hum about this huge God that we've just encountered. We have to, with everything in us, go know more about him. In this interaction here, as we watch the unfolding verses of uh, God, Yahweh versus Baal, He's inviting us to know some of the things that we can know about him. I'm only going to show you four. There's countless things you can know. I'm only going to show you four. But as we see these things, the real imperative is for us to be aware that there's vastly more that we can know about God and then want to seek to know these things as much as we can in this lifetime. But I'll show you four. What are these things? We've already seen one in verse 19 where Elijah says, I'm coming to your stadium. Therefore, gather all the people to Mount Carmel. 
So the first thing that we can see, what are some of the things that we can seek to know? Yahweh's the real God, and he's not hindered by geography. It's no big deal for him to go to the visiting turf and destroy Baal. Mount Carmel, it's in modern-day Haifa, which is on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean in Israel. And it's a home field advantage for the Baal prophets. And this means nothing to Yahweh. You know why? Because he invented that mountain. So it's no big deal. Nothing is too big for him to overcome. He's not hindered by geography. It's not like God lives, uh, you know, across town and and, and, and a place away from there in Jerusalem. God's big and he lives everywhere. He created everything. And so Baal and meeting, beating Baal on his turf is only going to highlight Baal's impotence and God's supremacy. Uh, And God's not hindered by geography whatsoever. And so if you want to apply that to your own life, whatever geographical um, boundaries you think that prohibit you or Christians from doing any work of God, that's nonsense. Closed countries, that's, that's just doublespeak. That, that's nothing. There's no such thing as a closed country to God. If God wants to open it, he'll open it. If God wants uh, someone that you can't see very often to become saved and that one time you get to see him, that you're going to use him, he's going to use you to, the, to save him, done. If God wants you to save somebody over Facebook Live or what's the new thing? Uh, Portal, if you have that, I don't have it. FaceTime, whatever it is, right? Um, Facebook Live wasn't what I meant to say. Nevertheless, there's nothing that keeps God from, from using you to save people. Um, obviously, he does it. You know what I mean. All right, so the first thing is that God's not hindered by geography. He's not this tiny little God that has to be constrained by where he is. He's everywhere. The second thing that we can know about God is that where the real God, Yahweh is the real God, where numbers don't necessarily matter. If the decks, quote unquote, stacked against him, that means nothing. Look at verse 22. Um, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So you've got the popular group, no doubt, is Baal and Asherah. There's at least 850 prophets plus all of Israel on this side, Elijah. <laughs> so if you're looking at mere popularity, it's the other side, right? Well, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make God less God if there's only one pe- person following. He does not need the numbers in order to win. He doesn't even need Elijah. He is God and he can do what he wants when he wants. He's not constrained by mere numbers. And so what we're going to see here as we look at the text is um, Elijah is going to propose the conditions of the showdown. He's going, here's, here's how the showdown should go, Baal prophets. And we can see what he says. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood, put no fire to it. And you'll call upon the name of your God, lowercase, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire... Well, then that's the real God. And the people answered, it is uh, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves your bull, prepare it uh, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, um, but put no fire to it. And so that's how it'll work. We'll split up. You can go first, get it all ready, call upon your God, see if he's going to burn up the altar. Uh, But whoever's altar gets burned up, they're the winner. And that's who is the real God. That's who serves the real God. This is what we're looking at. Um, and so now we're going to see, <coughs> excuse me, 
Now we're going to see kind of the, the carrying on of the Baal prophets trying to induce this non-entity to do something of which can't happen because there is no such thing. Verse 26. They took their bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So what, six hours probably? Five hours of saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. I want to make sure I key in on what the, the Hebrew in the Hebrew, the writer of First Kings is really wanting us to understand. If you look at that little phrase there in verse 26, but there was no voice and no one answered. Uh, mark that in your head or with your pen. And then look at the very end of 29 and notice it's very similar type language. Uh, where it says, there was no voice, no one answered. And at the very end, it says in verse 29, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. What he's trying to help you understand is this isn't some kind of polytheistic thing. It's not like there's Yahweh and there's a bunch of other little idols too. And they really exist. And like, as they're carrying on, here's Baal over here. Just kind of like, I don't really feel like answering y'all today and helping, you know, God's more powerful anyway. He'd win, so I'm not going to show up. What the writers want you to see is that there is no other such thing. There's Yahweh, and when they call on Baal, it's, it's as empty as this space right here. There's no real Baal. It's just nothing. It's not God and a bunch of other gods. There's only one God, and everything else doesn't exist. They're non-entities. There's no such thing. It's monotheism. One God and one God alone, and that's it. No other gods at all. They don't even exist. So calling out to air to do something is ridiculous. It doesn't work. And the writers want you to see that there is no such thing as calling out to Baal. So there was no voice and no one answered. And it says, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah, after about five or six hours of their goings on and goings on and nothing happened, Elijah sees this. And so he's going to mock him, which is just great. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing for Elijah to do this. This is what he says. Cry louder for he's a God, lowercase. Maybe he's musing or relieving himself like he's at the toilet. He just need to scream louder and tell him to come out, come out of the john. Like he's bring him out or he's on a journey or perhaps he's just asleep and needs to be wakened. He's just mocking him, which is just great. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily bad to mock ridiculous idolatry, which is what he's doing. You can't do it in a way that's not, not Christ-like, but this seems to be okay. Um, and it says this, and they cried aloud and cut themselves then after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out on them. And at midday past, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention, nothing, because there's no such thing as Baal. They just did all that for absolutely nothing. Now, notice this five to six hour goings on. And then watch Elijah. This is what Elijah does. If you look at verse 36, here it is. No long time here, right? The time of the offering of the oblation. Here's Elijah. The prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. And I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that these people may know that you are Lord and that you have turned back their hearts. Then here it is. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering in the wood and all the stones in the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So those two things are there for us to realize like long extensive goings on produce nothing. Boom. One sentence of prayer. God answers. So what's that teach us about God? It teaches us this. Put it number C. 
Yahweh is the real God where our frantic antics do not induce him to action. These guys go on and on and on. Nothing happens. Prayer, one prayer, done. What this means is this. Frantic, antic, Christian busyness aren't necessarily means of grace. Um, They don't manipulate or impress God. Uh, We gave away 5,000 Bibles at our church this year instead of you gave away three. So God's going to, and he has to, he's, he's constrained to do more work at our church now than your church. That's not how it works, right? That's, that's the whole point is God's not constrained by our frantic, antic Christian busyness. Now he's, he's like compelled to do more at certain places than others. And that's not who God is. I'm not saying that handing out Bibles is wrong, right? So hand out Bibles, hand out 50,000 million, you know, hand out as many as you want. What I'm saying is, is this, um, they don't necessarily induce God to action, but what does and what is over and over been show us, shown to us in the scriptures that, that God acts when this happens is when his people pray. Because he, in, he uh, causes our hearts to want to pray. And as p- more people pray, God hears our prayers, which he has ordained that we do. And then he, he, he comes on our behalf. And I don't think these are necessarily frantic antics, Christian business. Prayer is not. Um, but what we know is that uh, they don't induce God to action. That's what they think works. Well, here's uh, Elijah's turn. So notice what he does here. Um, Elijah's going to come over in a human, humanly speaking. Uh, he's going to overcome a lot of obstacles. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came. So they left the bales that didn't work. He draws them over to his, his place. <coughs> he repaired the altar of the Lord. They've been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, whom the word came to the Lord saying, Israel shall be your name. And here it is. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seas of, of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And they're like, what? You're supposed to, this thing's supposed to catch on fire and you're pouring water all over it. He's like, yeah, now do it a second time. As a matter of fact, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench everywhere with water. And so what this teaches us about God is this, because we, we know the story, right? Fourth is this, Yahweh is the real God where obstacles do not ever present complications. God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. Water on the altar for those there, this is a huge deal. How in the world is God going to burn up this big, wet, 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 wet altar? It's just inconceivable that this drenched, wet thing's going to catch on fire. But think of this for a second. Um, does this really for Yahweh, present any kind of obstacle whatsoever. I mean, think about it. He created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. There's no, there's no way that a wet altar is going to stop him from just absolutely consuming it in a moment's notice if he wants. He could have poured the entire ocean on top of it continually as he called it down, and it would just all the water would have evaporated in a moment's notice, and fire would have done it. Like, there is no amount of water that can keep God from consuming this. The point is God does not see obstacles the way that we do. And some people, some commentators that don't like this story are like, I thought there was a drought. I thought there was a famine. How come they have all this water? Well, they're beside the Mediterranean. That's why 
They're, they're right beside the big, huge sea. Um, that's why there's water there. So anyway, so we're complicated. We live complicated lives. And to us, overcoming obstacles, because we're so complicated, can be difficult. God is not stopped at all by any of the obstacles and complications in our life. Nothing in our complicated lives presents an obstacle for God. That's good news. That's unbelievably good news. So as complicated as your life is, as complicated as the person that you really love that you want to come to know Christ or return to Christ or whatever's going on in their life, praying for them, however crazy it seems, um, God can overcome it just like that. Just like that. Your marriage is complicated. Your parents' marriage is complicated. It doesn't matter what it is. God's the real God where obstacles do not ever present complications to him. These are some of the things that we can know about God in this text. As I said in number four, absolute awareness to seek to know the real God is what he requires. Just let me take one little commercial here and just say, um, outside of the Bible, there is a good book that you can read if you want to know some deep things about God. There's this book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. When I was in ethics class in seminary, yes, ethics, and I don't know why, my seminary professor said, you need to read this book. Um, and all it is is just a book about characteristics about God. It's just, here's some things about God. It's the knowledge of the Holy. People who are Christians should know these things about God. And we had to read it. And it's, it's amazing. It's very simple little book. Now I would say, if you want to know more about God, read this, read your Bible first. If reading this is going to cause you not to read your Bible, (laughs) don't read this and only read the Bible. But if you're, if you're one of those talented few that can read the Bible and other books at the same time. I'm kidding, obviously. Then, then read it. Grab someone else and read it. Do a little book club with them and let's get together and read chapters every week and study and learn things about God as we read the Bible, of course. Um, but it will help you know some more, I mean, just big picture truths about God that's very helpful for us to know um, about who he is because followers of God should have a, an awareness that they're supposed to seek constantly to know who the real God is. All right, so I want to go over 30 through 38 and just show you one more thing. Uh, And in this, we're going to see this um, amazing grace that's being given to them. So the fifth thing that we should acknowledge is the unyielding acknowledgement of our need to receive grace from the real God. God is continually extending us grace. That's number five. It should be up there. Um, And as we read this, this story one more time about Elijah, we may, you may have missed it as we went through it uh, where he sets up the altar There's just grace after grace after grace that God is showing the people of Israel who are there. I want you to see it. Verse 30, Elijah said, all the people come near to me and all the people came. And it says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. This is literally in the Hebrew healed. Uh, H-E-A-L-E-D. My Southern's coming out. Healed. I don't know how to say it in a way that doesn't sound like your foot, but healed. He healed the altar as he brought it. He brought them all together and they literally are watching him put together and heal and and repair this thing. And then he says this, um, all in the text, Elijah took 12 stones. We could breeze by that and think, oh yeah, but you know what? Right now the kingdom's divided 10 to the North, two to the South. And he's putting 12 here and saying, Israel, it's not supposed to be this way. You're supposed to be united. God's heart is that they would not be divided. And so he has 12 stones and it's according to the number of tribes. It's not even like happens to be 12. It's exactly because of the sons of Jacob, the word of God came to them. Israel shall be your name. And he's one of them to see, I care so much about you. I want you to be united. And he builds it. It says, in the name of the Lord, Elijah built the, 
the altar there in Yahweh's name. And in the prayer that he prays, you can see the grace that's being extended. He wants everybody known here is that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that you've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And don't miss this. This is the biggest grace being conveyed in verse 37. As they're there, as Elijah prays that God would show up and shows that he's the real God, what he wants, he doesn't want the people of Israel to, for God to show up and be like, oh yeah, look at that. Elijah won the showdown. Good job, Elijah. We'll see you later on ESPN. That's not what he wants, right? He wants that when they see that, they say, Baal's not real. We're supposed to follow God. Our hearts turn away from Baal and now go to God. That's what he wants the whole time. Verse 37, grace upon grace being shown here. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah wants what God wants. Grace upon grace to be extended to Israel and that they would repent of following these false idols and they would come back to God. And it's all happening in the Old Testament at the altar. It's at the altar. The altar is the place of atonement. The altar is the place where God will receive them back and forgive their sin if they would repent. It's the altar where they can come back to God. And for us, it's the same as the altar for us. If we are rebelling, if we are wondering, if we are idolaters, the road for restoration leads us down to the altar for us at Golgotha, namely the cross of Christ. Just as they're being called to the altar of the place of atonement, we are as well. The altar of Golgotha, the cross of Christ. So notice the grace upon grace here. People of God, we, we acknowledge this, our need to receive grace upon grace from this real God. And the good news is, is that God, just like he's extending it through Elijah to them, he extends it to Christ to us. So Christ is the true and better Elijah in every way. And watch their response. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's what we're supposed to do. When we truly encounter God, (coughs) our response is to scream and cry out, fall on our faces and worship and say, This is the true God. Why would I follow idols? This is the true God. Repent and come to him. That's what he wants us to do. Verse 40, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them all there. Well, that took a turn, right? (laughs) Everything was so good. And now we have this Old Testament barbarism again. Actually, you know, that's one way to think about it. But Elijah's a prophet. And what do prophets do? They... Proclaim the word of God and follow the word of God. Deuteronomy 13, 8 through 11 says, if there's anybody that takes the people of God and leads them away to follow false gods, kill them. So what is he doing? He's following the word of God. He's following and obeying Deuteronomy 13, 8 through 11. These Baal prophets caused the people of God to wander away from Yahweh. They've returned. And so the prophets should um, be done with as according to God's law. Now, we're at verse 40, and everything up to verse 40 is literally the prelude. We're actually at the main event now. So that was, uh, what time is it now? Let's see here. That was an hour, so I'm going to preach for one more hour on the main event now. I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm going to conclude with the main event. That's just a joke. So, But the truth is, right, that everything that we've seen is just the prelude. 
Remember 18.1, right? What did 18.1 say? After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain upon the earth. The point of the chapter is not, I'm going to defeat Baal at Mount Carmel. That's just a means to get to the actual main event, which is rain's coming. I took it away three years ago. I'm bringing it back. So 41 through 46, which we read, we're back to how did this happen? Here's the rain. We're now finally at the main event, which is the giving of rain. And as we see this, who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? We've, we've come face to face with the living God. The people of Israel fell on their face. Now we've got King Ahab and we've got Elijah. Look at the two and what they do. They just saw that God's the real God. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat drink for there's the sound of the rushing rain. It's going to come. Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah, he went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He went a little higher. He bowed himself to the ground and put his face between his knees and he prays. So who are we going to be in light of seeing the real God, like the people of God. Are we going to be Ahab, just go out and eat? Or are we going to be Elijah, go up to the mountain and pray and worship? In light of seeing God face to face in his word, what will you do today? Will you go out to lunch like it's no big deal to encounter the living God? Or will you seek his face and worship and prayer like Elijah? Now, there's a difference here as we're getting to the main event. If we remember in verse 38, Elijah prays once, God sends the fire down, consumes the altar. Here, he has to pray seven times for the rain to finally come. Watch. Verse 41, Elijah said, Ahab, do this. And he bows, his, bows down. Verse 43. And he said to the servant, he has a little servant with him, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up, looked towards and said, nothing. And he said, go again. And he does seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so God's going to send rain. And there's a difference between verse 38 and verse 43 and 44. There's a difference here in the prayers. The first time in verse 38 answered once. In verse 43 after 44 answered after seven times. And we can say, well, why? Why is it that the first prayer is answered the first time and the other time it's the seventh prayer that's answered? Because seemingly the sending of the rain was actually the point, right? Why is he making pray seven times for that and just pray for the altar? That was just kind of like happenstance seemingly. And how come it happens after once? Why, 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 why after seven times one and one after the other? If I, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know why seven times one and one the other. And for you, you prayed 45,000 times and it hasn't happened. Somebody else prays for something once and they get it or three times they get it. But here's my guess. Here's my guess. Because I know my heart and likely I know all of our hearts because we're all the same, right? Here's why. If there were a script, if there were a step, if there were a certain number of prayers, if everybody prayed twice in the Bible and then something happened, we would look at that and we say, Two prayers. That's what it, and we, the, prayer, the first one, we went like, blah, 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 blah. I don't even care. I know it's not going to work. And then I'm waiting for tomorrow for the second one, right? Um, if there were a script to follow for our prayers to get answered, then that's what we would do. And two things would happen. One, our hearts would not really be in it. Two, we would feel massively entitled once we followed the steps. And God doesn't want us to follow steps. God wants our hearts. And I think that's what's going on here. That's why it's one than seven, or it could have been any number. It's because God wants Elijah's heart, and he has it. And God wants your heart. He doesn't want you to think that following him is just following the list of steps. I do it, and God does. That's not what it means to follow 
God, to acknowledge who the real God is. God wants you to want to love him and that you actually do. And God wants your heart to say, yes, God. Yes, I love you. Yes, I want to follow you. And then we have this crazy thing that happens. So at verse 44, he did it the seventh time. He, tells, he says, go tell Ahab to prepare his chariot and go down and get to Jezreel as fast as he can because the rain's coming. And if he doesn't get to Jezreel fast, his chariots are going to get held up. By the way, from where they are to Jezreel, 17 miles. So he tells Ahab, he tells the servant, go tell Ahab. I mean, this is, why would he even do that, right? He can't stand Ahab, but he's being kind to the king. Go tell Ahab, because he's the king, to get on his chariots and get over to Jezreel, 17 miles away. Rain's coming, and he won't be able to get there. And so he runs down there, and he te- the little servant tells Ahab, get on your chariot, get to Jezreel, rain's coming. And he does it. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And watch this. This is crazy, right? And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's astounding. For 17 miles, he ran in front of the king who was in a chariot for 17 miles all the way to Jezreel. That's crazy. I don't know why, but one commentator had this pretty cool idea, which is um, we know one of the, the themes of First Kings is so goes the king's heart, so goes the people. And this is actually how it's supposed to be. You have the prophet, the man of God leading the king. And the, it's never to be the reverse. The prophet's not supposed to be following the king and the king's calling the shots. Since the prophet is the man of God who God speaks to, he's supposed to be leading the king and the people towards who God is. And he's given us a picture of what it's supposed to be like. That doesn't mean that Ahab's heart's changed or anything like that. Um, but I think that that's what that's there for. It's a pretty neat idea of what that's going on. I just think, you know, Elijah, if he's that fast... Should have born, been born 3,000 years later. Could have been in the NFL. I mean, he could have made some serious cash. Anyway, that's a side note. I mean, nothing. Here we are. I want to conclude with this. Um, just as the altar is the place that Elijah constructs for the people to see the grace of God, and when they do, they fall on their face, the same thing is for us. He's calling us to run away from the idols in our heart and to come to the altar of God, namely the cross of Christ, to fall on our face and to say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God has shown to us the glory of Christ and the, fa- the glory of, of God in the face of Christ. And he wants our heart. He wants us to repent. He wants us to leave the idols and to come to him because it's at the cross where Jesus offers us the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the true and better Elijah who extends um, to us the grace that's needed in order to be forgiven forever. Let's pray. We can rejoice and know that God is good because of this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the cross of Christ, the altar of which we can find repentance. And as we see this story, um, it doesn't just remind us about Elijah defeating Baal. Instead, it reminds us of Jesus defeating the idols of our heart, inviting us to the altar where we should fall down our face and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And we are called into repentance and faith. And so, Lord, I pray that we, as we see this, that we would um, put all of our hope and trust in Jesus and that um, for those that, of us who are believers, that we would just be absolutely amazed at your goodness to give us Christ. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.